or orgasm. And I was completely anorgasmic at that time. So we weren't even doing that. <laughs> My clitoris got no attention whatsoever. Um, and so I wasn't getting any nourishment from actual touch on the parts that do need touch, that feel good when touched. And later on, I realized I'm a very touch-based person. Welcome back to another episode. I am excited to have Irene Fair with me. She is a sex and intimacy coach. And one of the things that I really like about Irene's work is her personal touch and bringing her personal story into things. Um, I think that's really important uh, when we're talking about sex and intimacy and all of that stuff. So I'm really excited to hear more about your story and sort of cover this topic around sexless relationships and moving from that into sexful relationships. So can you tell us a little about your own journey in terms of that progression? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on this podcast and for letting me share this story and, and the work that I do. So how I started here was my own sexless marriage. How I, how um, I came to want to learn about sex was again, my experiences. And my story is like the story of so many of the couples that come to me, but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't think that this was a uh, common or normal in the sense of uh, like, it happens to so many couples. But what happened to me was I was in my late 20s. I met this amazing man. We fell in love and it was absolutely beautiful and amazing. In the beginning, we were the couple that everyone looked at and said, wow, you're perfect together. And sex in the beginning was passionate. It was exciting. There was an abundance of sexual desire from him, but also from me, like there was never even an inkling that I would have any problems with sexual desire, that I would have any problems losing my libido. And as we got deeper into the relationship, my sexual desire started to change. And it actually started to change when my body started to react differently. So first I lost lubrication. And I went to the doctors and I was told, well, just use lube, no problem. You know, it happens to everyone. And I believe that. And, you know, that's what I've read in the magazines too, Cosmo and, and other places on the internet. So I continued having sex while using lube. And then very quickly, sex became excruciatingly painful. Painful in entry, painful when he was bumping up against my cervix. And again, I went back to the doctors. I went to the best gynecologists in the country, literally on both coasts. I was living in California and I also flew to Maryland to Johns Hopkins to get advice what was happening. And uh, I got checked out every which way. Everything was completely fine with me. 
gynecologically, medically, they even did like a lung x-ray to see if maybe I had a tumor, you know, this big, right, the size of a baby that might have been creating pain during intercourse. But everything checked out normal. And I still continued to have pain during sex. And very quickly, my body was like, no, no more of this. This is not comfortable. This is painful. And my desire for sex went away completely. And I was getting so many mixed signals, right? So there's, I'm healthy. Everything is fine to sex still hurts. I can't do anything, nor do I even want it now. And parallel to all of this was, I was dealing with this silently. I, of course, my husband knew about, and and the man that I was with became my husband along this journey. So my husband, of course, knew that it was painful for me to have sex, but we weren't talking about it. And I was going through this completely silently. And what was happening for me was, of course, feeling like I am broken sexually. There is something wrong with me. And now that we're married, there's something wrong with me as a woman. There's something wrong with me, uh, you know, as a wife. So we got no answers and we weren't even asking questions, right? We weren't, we weren't dealing with this together. And that disconnect, that sense of despair and hopelessness cost us our marriage because we weren't, we weren't talking about it. And it was very difficult, but what was also more difficult for me on a personal level was leaving the marriage with so much shame and so much self-blame. Like, again, this, this is me, this is me who's broken. I'm not good enough as a woman. And that having a huge impact on my life for the next four year, four or five years where I fell into a deep depression because I shut down so deeply. I disconnected from my body because I was ashamed of this thing, right? Like I, you know, it was literally feeling like this thing was an embarrassment. This thing, this body was, was causing me this harm. And I also disconnected from my desire to the point where I didn't even know what I wanted to eat for dinner at a restaurant. I would mull over the options and get stuck because I really disconnected from the part of me that feels desire, that knows what it wants and all of that. So it was incredibly painful and sad, but I was a trooper. I was just, you know, I'm I'm resilient, I'm strong. And so I keep going. And finally, about five years after the divorce, I had a nervous breakdown slash spiritual awakening. I love Brene Brown's phrase. Um, uh, when I heard it, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I had. So finally, I had a year where everything went wrong. My body gave out. I ended up in the hospitalized um, and uh, also misdiagnosed. It was just like the hell broke loose. And, um, and in that, I had a spiritual awakening that, number one, I wasn't living my life. That's so much of what I was doing career-wise. I had a corporate career. Everything that I was doing in terms of friends and activities was everything that I was supposed to do. Um, So that was happening. And also what I realized was, I think everything that I've been believing about myself has been bullshit. This is bullshit. Like the, the, this, this, this um, idea that I 
can't enjoy sex or I shouldn't enjoy sex or that I'm not sexual, which is what I was doing. I was researching being asexual because I didn't have any desire um, that this isn't me. But I also knew that I didn't know who I was. So my journey was first to start working with life coaches to help me piece myself back together and discover myself. And then very quickly, the desire, the deep desire to be in a relationship surfaced. And I started working with a sex coach to understand what was happening sexually. And, you know, still there was a story in my head that I had to fix myself. But very quickly, when I started working with a sex coach, I learned that there was nothing wrong with me, that there was nothing broken. And, you know, now, so many years later, I know exactly what happened to me and what happened to my husband at the time that, number one, what happens to couples in the beginning of a relationship is false advertising in terms of what needs to happen to keep the passion and the connection long-term. So we were great in the beginning, but we didn't get, we didn't, we never got the tools to actually catch up to where our relationship was, where it was going deeper and there's commitment and there was just the longevity of it. So that's number one. And I talk about the three types of sex and how that um, develops. So we can talk about that later. Um, but then also parallel to that is what I realized about my own experience in my own body was that without having the tools to be able to connect to each other and create passion and create um, context that felt good for me, my body was starving. And so it started to shut down. So I lost lubrication because the things we weren't doing were no longer working for me. They weren't enough. And then using lube to make penetration possible, but still not being aroused, not having what I needed, the nutrients, I was forcing my body to have sex. And thank God my body was screaming with pain because it was its way of saying, don't do this. You, this there isn't, you, you know, you're trying to run a marathon and you've been starving for several years. Like this is not a good combination. And so again, looking back at this now from, from everything that I know, having worked with hundreds of couples and hundreds of women and having recovered myself, I was simply starving and my body was having a very healthy response to starvation. And there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. In reality, I was very healthy and I was having a very healthy response. And that's, again, what, what I see with women that come to work with me as well right now. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that piece of starving? Because obviously you're not talking about food, but I'm wondering if you can say what you mean by that and and then I have another question about how you and your husband were communicating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I think of, when I talk about starvation, I talk about very specific elements that ignite a woman's libido. So it's, it's, if you think of her libido as an engine, she needs fuel. And these four things are fuel for a woman's libido. And Again, we can think about what happens when you're starting to date and what's there. What, what is there is that when you're single, you have time to yourself. You have a room of your own, so to speak, right? You're in charge of your life. You're taking care of yourself. You have spaciousness. You have you know, time to rest, time to preen yourself, time to do things that, that light you up. 
And in a long-term relationship, especially if you have children, that gets cut into, that gets reduced drastically to, again, for some people, Toma zero. And that's certainly true for men as well. So it's not just women, um, that our personal time and personal space gets reduced drastically. For men, it doesn't affect their libido as much. Still does, of course, but not as much. But for women, that's a huge piece. So I was starving of any time to myself. We had packed our relationship with so many things. And I take responsibility for a lot of it. But we were traveling. We were doing things. We, uh, I was volunteering and doing different projects. We had chickens. We had a dog. <laughs> you know, we had a huge garden that needed to be maintained. So I filled my life with so much stuff, but I had no time to myself. And I was also, in the beginning of our relationship, we were both finishing grad school. So there's that too. <laughs> a little, the little thing, like graduate school. Um, the second piece is emotional connection. And like I said, we didn't have the tools to even talk about what was happening. So we were struggling silently. And that, of course, disconnected us. We didn't have that emotional connection. But of course, for women, especially emotional connection is key to feel safe, to be able to open up, to feel like your partner is your lover, not just like someone sleeping next to you and doing the chores, right? That, that emotional connection is key. And in our case, that was that dwindled down very, very quickly. The third element is exquisite attention. Again, Think about what happens when you're dating, right? You're texting each other or spending hours on the phone. Or when you're together, you're constantly reaching over and kissing each other or holding hands. When you go to the movies, who cares about the movie? You're you're in there making out, right? It's just your attention is on each other so much and it feels so good. But then the relationship... Uh, gets deeper. And naturally that motivation for, for giving that attention goes down because it originally was all driven by hormones, right? The, the, the sexual attraction, the newness, all of that. And then you're just roommates, you're passing each other while doing all these things. And that was certainly happening for us, that exquisite attention, you know, it, it didn't go away completely, but it wasn't the same. And it wasn't coming from this you're my lover place. It was just like, yeah, you're my wife. We live together. We have all these household things we need to deal with. Um, but that was a huge, that had a huge effect on my libido. And then the last piece, same thing, touch. And not just touch, but touch without a goal. Touch, like I said, going to the movies and making out. Not because it's foreplay for sex, you know, not, you know, he's not buttering you up to have sex or you're preparing yourself to have sex, but that you're just doing it because it feels amazing. And you're doing it because you want to reach over and touch your partner. And that also went down for us. And again, this is this is what I see in all couples. And this is this is natural in the literal sense of the word, because in the beginning it's driven by hormones. But it needs to be created intentionally in a long-term relationship because these things are essential nutrients. And last one specifically for me, and this falls under the touch category, was we were doing the very basic stuff, which is what worked in the beginning, right? We, we 
had the hots for each other. So I was ready for penetration or so I assumed um, very quickly. But as time went by, that formula wasn't working anymore. I needed prolonged touch. I needed to have sensual and sexual touch without trying to get to intercourse or orgasm. And I was completely anorgasmic at that time. So we weren't even doing that. (laughs) My clitoris got no attention whatsoever. Um, And so I wasn't getting any nourishment from actual touch on the parts that do need touch, that feel good when touched. And later on, I realized I'm a very touch-based person. For me, touch creates arousal, touch connects, touch makes me come alive. Not always for some people, but for me, for specifically, it's touch. And I wasn't getting that. I was getting, you know, kissing, touching breasts, fingering the pussy a little bit, and then we go to intercourse. And that was like getting like a breadcrumb and a half. And I needed the full damn cake. (laughs) I needed a whole cake factory. (laughs) And my body wasn't responding. And again, it was a healthy response. I just didn't have the words to explain that. I really love, I really love what you're saying because as a sex researcher, everything you're talking about tracks with what I've heard specifically from women who have sex with men, um, other dynamics different, but in the sex research for hetero or people, people having sex with opposite sex, you know, women repeatedly talked about when I would ask about the men who are best in bed, they talked about touch without, um, trying to get somewhere. Touch for touch's sake, touch for enjoyment, savoring the feeling of we're making out, he's enjoying it. He's here with me in the moment. It's not to get somewhere. It's because it's fun. (laughs) It's because it's fun. And, you know, I've read different, different studies and different statistics on arousal, but generally speaking, you know, one said it takes men about seven minutes to come to full physiological arousal. So all the blood is all where it needs to be and they're, they're ready. And it takes women like 45 minutes, which again, different studies say different things. Some studies say 25 minutes, but at the very least, we're talking about three times as long, three times as long is the minimum. And some people say it's four or five times as long. So there is an asymmetry in arousal patterns that I really don't think a lot of men who have sex with women actually grasp like how much longer it is. And then you layer on porn over that. You overlay porn, which is exactly what you described in terms of of straight porn of like a little bit of kissing, a little bit of breast grabbing, finger the pussy, ready ready for penetration. And it's like, actually that doesn't work for, for most women who have sex with men. Like you said, if there are a lot of hormones, if there's a lot of dopamine, if it's the beginning of a relationship, yeah, quickies can be really fun. And quickies, in, in my experience, you know, that should be like 20% of the time. Like one in five sexual encounters should be quickies, but four out of five should be way longer than that. And, you know, the, the research shows that the average sexual encounter is about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So 
when you think about it, you're like, but is the woman even turned on? If the average sexual encounter is 20 minutes, like I don't, you know, and to your point, I really was struck and I was struck in the research over and over by the women who talked about the men who were best in bed. They, you know, they held my hand, they grabbed me from behind in the kitchen. There was a lot of touch that wasn't necessarily sexual. Maybe it was flirty or flirtatious or sexual in the sense that I find you attractive, but not I am touching you so that we go have sex now. It's just I like you and you're beautiful and I'm going to pinch your butt because you're so, you know, I love you <laughs> and I find you very attractive and you're doing dishes, not I'm doing this so that we then go do this other thing. And repeatedly again and again, women talked about this of just that was, the, those were the men that were best in bed. And I realized, wow, I even as a sex researcher, even fall into the category of thinking, oh, sex is about the thing we do in the bedroom for 20 minutes but when I looked at the research for women, it was a much longer experience than that in, in an ideal world. When they were talking about the men who were really good at it, I was like, wow, this is an extended, a really long experience that's much longer than just those 20 minutes. And I love your um, description of starving versus fed because there's something really beautiful. You know, I tend to think of women as plants and if you don't water them, they just wilt they just wilt and they just get really sad. And it just, you know, the spark, it's just like, eh. Mm, the life, like, life is gone out of them. Yes, the life force is gone. Whereas that exquisite attention, like you said, physical touch, nourishing, nourishing touch, you know, it's so um, evocative, that image of starving versus being fed and, you know, nutrients and all of that. So, yeah, I'm curious in your, you know, self-discovery journey as you went through this, how, how did that change your sexual relationships from then on? How did you, what was your life like after you kind of got yourself back? That's a great question. And, you know, my mind goes to the first time that I had sex after I started come back, coming back to myself and starting to uh, realize I wasn't broken. Um, I had also been doing a lot of different kind of tantric like practices around touch. And I really waited a while before I had sex. But that first time, which was about five years after my last time of having sex, no, probably more than that, actually seven years, if I think about it, um, it was so incredible. What, what changed in me was learning to track and read my body and be able to say what it was that I was experiencing, what I was needing in the moment. And first of all, the sex that I had during that first time was so much slower than I would have ever gone before. It was with my eyes open, with both of our eyes open. So that means that meant that we were connecting, that meant that we were communicating, that meant that we weren't intoxicated which was also the, the, the way I used to have sex. Not necessarily drunk, but always, because it was always after dinner, after we've had a couple of glasses of wine with dinner, we were both wine connoisseurs, had a wine collection. So there was always some kind of, some level of intoxication. And with lights off, and here it was daylight, eyes open, slowing it down, and me feeling in control of what was happening. Like I felt empowered to say, could you move to the left? Could you slow it down? Could you go deeper? And I could also say, could you stop? Which is something that I lacked before. 
I was just in the space of I'm being done to. Right. As opposed to I'm an equal participant who can shape my own experience. And so that first time I actually started crying because I remember it was just like, wow, this is why I like sex. And this is what it can be, this this slow experience where my body is slowly opening up and slowly relaxing and getting into it rather than, come on, we're, you know, on the clock because usually because the man, the man is so aroused. He's on a, such a faster timeline as you talked about. And I had, you know, I was always under the gun to match him because I thought that's what sexual meant. And here it was about a year into doing this, this sex coaching work that I was doing in the different practices. I just felt empowered to shape the experience for my needs. And he was a very generous lover. He also understood that. And yeah, it was, it was such an, it was a softening experience. You know, I, I think I had hardened so much through this journey and that was a big step in softening and be and really enjoying myself and that was the first time that I had actually enjoyed sex for me I definitely was enjoying it before but it was a different kind of enjoyment it wasn't nourishing it wasn't it was you know it felt good it felt good being touched and rubbed and and penetrated but here it was like wow this is actually touching me in a deep way this is touching my soul this is touching my whole being rather than friction that feels good. I think that's a really good distinction between the two experiences because I do think that culturally we are taught the the friction way. <laughs> like and that yeah. is also what's depicted in in most porn. In ethical porn, you know, different porn sites there are some porn sites that are much, much better. When I'm talking about porn, I'm talking about sort of mainstream porn, like the tube sites. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of space or room for the woman to express. And again, I just want to name, I'm. this is a heteronormative lens that we're using right now. I'm talking about um, sex with men and women with male and female body parts. And in that, in those encounters, you know, it's, largely produced by and for white men. And, and so the frame, the, the lens, like everything is, is, is focused on his pleasure and she isn't really empowered. You know, like what you just said of like, how many times in a mainstream porn video, do you see a woman saying, Ooh, could you slow down? Mm -hmm. Like actually that, that hurts a little bit. Could you try a little less, you know, less penetration or, you know, less pressure on my clit? Literally never. I have never, never, all Absolutely. of my years, and I don't watch that much porn, but I'm definitely a consumer. I, I watch porn. I have never seen that. I have never seen it modeled. And so there's no modeling on either side, meaning women who watch porn, which there are millions of us, don't see it. And men who watch porn don't see it. So there's no modeling. There's no modeling of consent. There's no modeling of adjusting, right? Because in my, in my experience, sexual experience personally, but also with my clients, 
everyone needs adjustment. <laughs> I, I anyway, it's, it's like learning how to dance with someone. You're going to need to learn how to adjust to one another's bodies and people's bodies are different, especially women. You know, one of the most striking, one of the women in my sex research, she has sex with both men and women. And she said, yeah, women are harder to fuck. The signals are more subtle. Um, the bodies are, are, uh, like more different was essentially what she was saying. And, um, what did she say? It was something about, yeah, it's just like the cues, like the cues are harder to read. So it can require a little more, uh, more, uh, you know, communication, essentially. And attunement, really understanding and, and yeah. you know, being in sync with what's happening. Yeah. It, you know, you, you mentioned dance analogy and I'm thinking having sex with women, it's like learning a dance and then the music changes <laughs> and then the music changes again and the music changes again. And that's like having sex morning and and like the difference even being when you have sex with the same woman, but you have it in the morning with her and then the evening. And it's a completely different piece of music. And where she is on her cycle. There are certain days of the month when our bodies are far more sensitive. I mean, way more sensitive, like, okay, everything hurts. <laughs> like, you know, don't touch me. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe a little bit. And then it's a totally different thing. And also that's not modeled. There's none of that in what we're shown regarding sexuality. So I'm, I'm wanting to go back to your marriage and you, you know, the, the two of you, because I, I have clients that come and are in sexless marriages and it's such a sensitive topic. It's so fraught and there's so much pain around it. I'm wondering, you know, what were your conversations like? And was there something that your husband could have said or guided a conversation in a way that would have felt good to you around mm. this? Because I really hear, you know, all of that sort of self-blame of like, I'm broken, there's something wrong with me. Was that, you know, was that kind of the frame he was taking as well? Was there something he could have done, a way he could have helped? Like what, what role do you think there is for a man in that dynamic? Great, great question. And unfortunately, the, the simple answer is that we were not talking at all. I was going to the doctors. I was consulting with doctors. I was reporting back on the doctor's appointments. None of this, none of that was secret, but there was no emotional connection. So we weren't actually talking about how, for me, those experiences and the news and uh, like how that was disappointing or how confused I was and how scared I was about what that meant for a relationship or about me, right? Like what it meant about me as a sexual woman. That never entered our conversations even at the end. And to your question of what do I wish he had said was I wish that he had said wow, I see you're hurting. I see you're confused. Because he was a sensitive man. He wasn't, he, he wasn't oblivious to any of that. But that he acknowledged it. I see that, you know, this is really hard on you. And I want you to know I'm confused too. I don't have the answers either. I'm scared too. And just even starting with that, he it would be even better if he said, like, let's figure this out together. But aside from that, just 
acknowledging what you're seeing in your partner, that you're seeing them struggling, that you're seeing them. And this is what I was doing. I was putting on a fake smile, right? I'm fine. I'm strong. I'm resilient. I'm good. But really seeing each other's hurt and each other's struggle, that's what connects people. That's the vulnerability, right? That we always talk about in relationships. And I wish I could have said that to him too. I wish I could have said, wow, I I can see that this is hard on you too. I can see that you don't know what to do. And that probably makes you feel powerless. And that's really hard on you. But neither of us knew how to do that. Yeah, I really appreciate that inclusion inclusion of that word powerless because I've noticed in my clients and and I think in their partners as well, there is such a sense of despair <laughs> and hopelessness and res, resign resignation. Just oh God, I don't I can't see how this would ever be different and I don't know what to do about it. And I love this person and I want to be with this person, or we co-parent really well together. That's when I get a lot, you know, we have a whole household. Like I don't want to blow up this marriage and I deeply want sex. Mm -hmm. Like I deeply want sexual connection. I want, I really want that in my life. And that's something that I really love in what you said of um, just starting with the acknowledgement of, I see you, I see how hard this is. And one thing that I would also highlight in what you said is, I would like to figure this out together, right? Because really, I think that there's there's a tendency I've noticed in a lot of the men that I've worked with to kind of shy away from hard stuff Mm -hmm. in relationship. Like, I don't know what to do about this piece, Mm -hmm. right? I can tell our sex life isn't working, but I don't know how to bring it up. So I'm just going to not bring it up. (laughs) And you all can't see me, but on the camera, I'm kind of facing away from this thing over here that's big and scary and hard. And I'm just gonna go like this and not look at it. And that's so painful. It's so, so painful to be a woman in a relationship where the man is not kind of addressing the hard things. And I, I do think that there's a role for the masculine in facing facing the hard things and bringing up the hard things. And, and to your point, like, I see you. I see this. I see this struggle. I can see how hard this is for you. It doesn't have to be our sex life isn't working. What are we going to do about it? That doesn't have to be the start of the conversation. It can just be, I see this. I see that this is, this is hard for us, both of us and, you know, holding her hands. And I would also kind of advocate for, you know, you, you know, you on your journey, you hire, you invested probably thousands of dollars in yourself and so coaching and, and healing. And I think that's another thing that, you know, it's, it would be such a gift for the masculine, for a man, for to lead in this way in a relationship and say, I'm scared too. I don't know what to do about this. I would love for us to be on the same team. And I've looked up some, some people that might be able to help, mm-hmm. right? That there, there, there are people that can help couples with this. I guess that's where I'm going with this is there are people who know what they're doing that can help. And you're not the first couple to go through this. So there's, you know, I think there's such a beautiful role for leadership in that. And I've heard from a lot of my male clients that there are a lot of women that just don't want to do it. They're like, yeah, I'm not interested. I don't want sex. Sex isn't that important to me. Um, what was the, someone said, um, 
sex just isn't a priority for me right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, because you work with so many couples, mm-hmm. can you speak a little bit to that experience of a man who's in a sexless relationship, whether they're married or not, trying to address it, mm-hmm. where she's sort of like, yeah, I don't want to, basically, I don't really want to go there. What are his choices? And what do you think is, a, a, you know, what is appropriate for him to express? And, and, and how does he navigate that? Yeah, I love this question, because I face this all the time, about 45% of the people who request consultations with me are actually men. And they come with the same story that you just outlined. Sex is really important to me. I love my partner. We are, you know, the loves of our lives. We have this amazing family. And I want to share sex as in like sharing each other vulnerably and really connect with each other. My wife says sex is not important to her. And it's, it's, it's a real struggle. And, and I also want to say like that's 45% of the consultations, consultation requests that I get. So there's absolutely men who are willing to do the work to show up, to face these dark or difficult situations. And what I usually tell them is that it's a hard situation. The reason for their partner's resistance is probably patterns that have developed over the years where she felt probably powerless to speak up about what she needed and has had sex that was just going through the motions, obligatory sex, doing it to maintain the relationship or keep the peace whatever flavor of that, um, you know, you have in your relationship and there's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of, you know, her closing her heart, her, um, building the shell and probably him responding to negatively, of course, being triggered by that, that that is hurtful when your partner builds this wall or shell around them. And the key piece is to restore the vulnerability so the first thing is what, what I wish had happened in my marriage, but um, doing that in this situation is starting to acknowledge both what you see in your partner and then also taking responsibility. Like I realized that for years, I wasn't willing to hear what you really were telling me, or I wasn't willing to give you that exquisite attention. I was focused on work. And making us happy from that kind of practical logistical piece, but I know I give you breadcrumbs at the end of the night, right? And that starts to restore vulnerability, which starts to soften her. Not a foolproof method. This isn't a formula, right, to, to get her to to do anything, but at least it's re- it starts to restore vulnerability, and it starts to have. It's a start to a vulnerable conversation. And it's not an overnight process. And a lot of the times it is, you know, you're trying to have someone put down a wall of armor that they've built up to protect themselves. So giving each other grace, being patient with each other, you know, knowing that this is a sensitive area. And again, just coming back to being vulnerable and being vulnerable. And at some point being really honest about 
the role of sex for you. Like if, when, if sex is really important and you cannot have a fully fulfilling, fully satisfying relationship, being honest with you, with your partner about that, not as an ultimatum, not as, you know, if this doesn't happen, I'm leaving, but being honest that if this is not happening, like I know I can't be my full, uh, happy self here. And I don't want that for me or for you. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, it, it is ultimately a match. Is it a match or not? Not, are you good enough? Or are you, it's like that match has to be present in a partnership. And sometimes it's not, that's the truth. I think the other piece, and I'd be curious to hear how many of your clients are showing up with sexual trauma, because I think that it's so prevalent and a lot of sexual trauma goes unprocessed in both men and women. You know, many of my male clients are survivors of child sexual abuse or um, I'm including teenage uh, unwanted sexual touch in teenage years as well. Mm-hmm. And I would say the majority of their partners, right? The majority of the male clients I work with, the majority of their partners are survivors of sexual trauma. And I'm wondering in your clients, you know, how much of that kind of armoring or dissociation that you were talking about, especially in the women, is actually kind of a repeat of something from when they were younger. Like how many of the clients coming to you have sexual trauma and how, and how early do you address that? Great, great question. And I'm going to answer it also from the perspective of being a somatic experiencing practitioner. So I, I always look at everything from the trauma lens. And this is going to sound radical, but I'll say that 100% of my clients come with trauma. Very few come with actual things that would be called the big T traumas. So I don't work with people who, who have severe abuse or severe, for example, sexual trauma, such as rape or incest, just that that's in a way out of scope for me um, as a practitioner and out of scope for for the area that I want to practice in. But where the 100% number comes in is that we all come with sexual trauma, 100% of us, just because of the kind of culture that we have grown up in. And that um, includes especially women who have engaged or who continue to engage in obligatory sex or sex that they're having when they're not aroused. So this is my own number that I'm about to give you, but from the work that I've done, from my own experiences, I would say that most women have sex at 20 to 30% of possible physical arousal. So from a physical perspective, the body actually thinks that this is a violation. The pussy and everything on the inside, the genitals are not ready. She's not engorged. She's not in this open state of mind. She's not, she's not one with her body. She's still in, in her thoughts. She's performing, right? Again, there's no plumpness in her genitals. There's no full stretch. She needs lube to to literally lubricate, enable penetration. Otherwise, it's too frictiony. And so that creates a lot of trauma. And that's pretty much 100% of the women. We've, if we had sex with a man 
at some point in our lives, especially in the younger years, it was most likely too much, too fast, and too soon, too early. And so that creates a couple of things for a woman. It teaches her to override her own intuitiveness in terms of what her body needs. It has her doubt herself because like, look, he's turned on, he's going faster. And this is what porn shows I'm supposed to do. So I must be wrong. There must be something wrong with the way I'm perceiving what I need. And it creates this vicious cycle in the body where she's overriding what her body is telling her. There is forced penetration and even, you know, oral sex without actually having that proper arousal too. That arousal creates desire for oral sex. Without arousal, you have a penis in your mouth and you're performing the, this, the, you know, this movement, but you're not feeling it, right? It's just, it, it, the arousal makes it pleasurable and connected and all of that. So when you force your body to do that, the body thinks, again, it's a violation and it, it creates diminishing returns each time you do that. The body tightens, it braces for impact, it shuts down desire, and it just becomes so much harder for the woman to have sex. So this is what I work with with 100% of the couples and, and single women. So I work with single women and couples, 100%. Everyone has been through that. And when it comes to men, it's also sexual small T trauma in terms of being rejected if he's really if he's really in his kind of this animalistic masculine self or rejected if he's wanting to do something uh, or laughed at or um, certainly many men have also experienced unwanted touch from male relatives, all of that, and them disconnecting from their bodies, right? Them disconnecting from their own intuitive sense that this isn't right. I'm not comfortable doing that. So they override it and they also go more into performance mode. And again, yeah, there's hundred percent of, of, of people that I work with because so much of it is cultural and so much of it is um, lack of, real conversations about this that we all grew up with. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, when you are working with those women and, or those couples, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is slowing things down and having people actually be in their bodies. And I would imagine also empowering women to share what's actually going on. Do you, do you also empower men to say, you know, how's that pressure? You know, do you, how do you work with couples that are, that are doing this? Oh, that's a big question. Um, absolutely. So the short answer is yes, absolutely. I, the way I work with couples is actually, there's three clients in the couple. There's the client, the couple themselves, obviously they come to me as a couple, then they're my main clients. But I also work individually with both partners to support each of them to bring their best selves, to understand themselves and to learn how to be in integrity with themselves. So a huge part of it is understanding their own bodies and being able to use their voice to say, 
this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I'm not comfortable with. This is not okay. And in that sense, it's empowering both of them so that they can, like I said, bring the best selves into the relationship and achieve their relationship goals and learn to relate and communicate. So those tracks happen parallel to each other. But the first thing that I do with couples is very similar to what I mentioned when you asked, what do you do when like a man wants to communicate to his, his female partner? And that's to restore vulnerability in their relationship. The couples that come to work with me have been in some form of a sexless relationship, mostly sexless marriage. So they're married. Uh, most have been married for 10 plus years. Some couples have been married for 25 plus years. Others are new couples, like a couple of years in. And they come in so hardened, so hopeless, and so protected and guarded because they're, well, either it's been years or decades of pain and resentment, or in the newer, the younger couples, the newer couples, it's so much fear that they will lose each other. Like here we are, we've been together for five years. We love each other. We wanna start a family or we just started a family what is going to happen if we can't make sex work? So I help them put the armor down and at the same time, learn how to not just expose yourself, but to actually take care of yourself. So the self-soothing, the taking care of yourself, showing up for yourself. So you're not just, you know, again, exposing yourself to be so vulnerable, but that you know how to be vulnerable and how to support yourself there. And that's the first two months of, of the work that I do with couples. And by the way, I work with couples for at least a year. Most couples I work with for two, two and a half years or so. And for that first two months, we focus on creating that safe space. And usually a month, three, four, five, six, depending on the couple, I introduce the sex work. Like I introduce looking at sex, discussing it, having them practice different things, usually until then, they're not ready. They they feel, they don't feel close to each other. They don't feel like they're uh, each other's um, confidants. Like they, they're, they're still enemies at some level. So it's a very, it's a very attuned process. It's a very slow process. That's super important. And it's very much about empower the, or empowering them along the way so that they they don't feel like they're going to collapse back into the old situation, building them up, right? As opposed to just exposing them. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what kinds of transformations do you see in the couples that you work with? Like you, you know, do you sense any patterns? Do you see like, oh yeah, after about a year, we're way further. Mm-hmm than we were a year ago. You know, what kinds of transformation do you see? Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, a big question, but what comes to mind first is uh, the email that I got this morning from one of my clients and uh, they're embarking on a, on a trip now that things have opened up again and it's going to be their celebratory trip and celebrating their relationship, celebrating their recommitment to each other. And exactly a year ago, last summer, they were discussing divorce. 
They had been together for over 20 years, have a family, and it, they were at wit's end. Like they had worked with therapists. They had worked with, uh, I think they said they, they started working with a sex therapist, but they left them like very quickly. It wasn't working at all. Um, and so much of it is helping them fall in love with each other again. Like I said, put the armor down and really see each other and really see each other for who they are. They got stuck in the pattern of one person wanting sex more and another person not really being available, but working very hard and then working too hard and then getting resentful and then pulling back and another person wanting it more. It was just this very sticky, very, very strong down, you know, vicious cycle. Um, and so, yeah, here, here they are. A year later, they put in a ton of work, really. They, they're just super, you know, even though there was so much despair, they were dedicated to finding a solution. And that's a big success factor for couples that work with me is that things may be extremely hard, but there is a part of them that's like, yeah, we're in it to make it work. I think that's really important because what I hear in that is um, devotion, devotion yeah. to the relationship. And it does sound like both partners were bought in and there mm -hmm. was commitment because I would imagine, you know, I would imagine that in many of the cases, there's an asymmetry. W one person has reached out to you and mm -hmm. maybe the other is a bit reluctant to get started. And, you know, how does that work in terms of overcoming that initial, you know, I like I'm just imagining the person that comes in with their arms crossed and is like, what's this going to be, you know, am I going to be here? But yeah. that's comes across as criticism or skepticism or, you know, how does that work? Because couples are complicated. There are two human beings mm -hmm. if one's more invested than the other. It's not necessarily going to be as effective. Yeah. So this happens all the time. And there's a couple of ways I want to answer that. So primarily I do not work with couples where one person does not want to do the work. So there, there's a filter from the beginning where my requirement is that both people want to do it. However, there are gradations of that. There's gray areas. So there are certainly couples where one person is more dedicated to doing it, another one less, or one person who wants sex more and they're like, let's do everything. And the other person is like, well, I want to do it, but I don't know if it's going to work. So they're a little hesitant. And what actually happens is because I focus so much on creating that safety, both in the container of the coaching, slowing things down, listening, making it a safe space for them to open up with me. What starts to happen is that they actually start to air out the hurts and the, the grievances. And underneath the hardened shell, there is a part that's like, I so want to make this work. I just don't know how. And I think I've given up. But of course, I want to make this work. And so with the couples where I can see that through the initial process, like where I can see that there's hope in unearthing that, um, I can help them get on the same page of how important it is. And that's part of the, the consultation process and the, the kind of um, uh, interview process that I go through. And... Again, I just want to stress like the importance of 
vulnerability and safety and how important it is to have a third party. Because you, if you've been together for a while and it's been painful, you've built armor against each other. You may, you know, you may have been saying the right things to each other, the same things that I'm going to tell you, but hearing it from me creates a whole different level of safety, creates a whole different impact than hearing it from your partner. And that's the value of hiring someone, bringing a third party in because you don't have charge with them. You hear them differently. They're not your enemy. You, you, you know that you're, they're on your side. Yeah. I want to, I want to stress that, especially because in triggered states, we are often in very young places. Mm-hmm. So you are in a triggered state and your partner is in a triggered state. You've got two five-year-olds in the room <laughs> and it's really hard to make adult progress with two angry, ta- sad, tired five-year-olds in the room. And there's so much value to having healthy mom or healthy dad there, which is mm-hmm. sort of what, what role an attuned third party plays, whether that's a therapist or a coach or whoever it is, but someone that can be with this person's pain and explain it in a way that this person can hear with an open heart. You know, there, there really is something that changes the space about having a third nervous system in the room that's holding, that's holding safety, that's holding listening, that's holding a compassionate heart when neither of the other people are able to do that. So I guess, yeah, just to echo that, the importance of that, particularly with entrenched patterns, like the ones you're describing of like, wow, we've been doing this dance for 12 years. <laughs> if you could do a different dance, guys, you would be doing it. <laughs> like, exactly. you, know, you, you can't get there on your own all the time. And it's really, I think, important and, and necessary. And I, you know, I feel like we have no stigma or shame around my car is broken. I don't know how to fix my car. I take my car to a mechanic, but we have all this weirdness around mental health or spiritual health around like, I should be able to do it or we should be able to do it. I really don't. I really don't think that couples can do it by themselves. Even conscious couples, every conscious couple I know gets support every single one. So I think that there's uh, there's a lot for us to change in our culture around couplehood. And I think that's one of the things is people say it takes a village to raise a child. And I would argue it takes a village to support a couple. Each couple member needs support. And then the couple themselves needs, needs some guidance and support sometimes. And there's, there's literally nothing wrong with it. We, we keep assuming there's something wrong with that couple, but it's really actually not true. <laughs> it's really Absolutely. Actually- Absolutely. Yeah. I love this, the, the use of it takes a village because it absolutely applies here. And it absolutely applies when um, when you're getting married, because once you cross the aisle, it it, it automatically it, or it doesn't mean automatically that you know how to be a partner to each other. Or once you had a baby, it does not automatically um, give you all the wisdom and knowledge of being a mother and a father. We yeah. need elders, we need supporters, we need experts, we need, yeah, the whole village to support us because all of those stages in our life, whether you go through them or not, marriage and, and children, of course, are all optional, but these mile, these mile markers are so transformational and we absolutely need guidance around them. Yeah, so as we start to wrap up here, I'm wondering how people can find you and your work and what's the best platform to follow you on? Well, the best uh, ways is to actually check out my website and get on my mailing list and then you'll get 
my weekly blogs and um, different things that I'm involved in, like podcasts that I'm on um, and different programs that I have. And the website is irenefair.com. I'm also on the so on all the social media platforms, although I'm not very active, um, although I will be starting up Instagram and the handle is Ignited Woman. So that was that was a my business name when I had just started doing coaching 10 years ago, but I love it and I am one. So so I kept it. Um, and I also want to provide links to a couple of articles that I've written recently about some of the topics that we've talked about. Um, you know, you were talking about how women's sexual desire is not something, it's not only the things that are happening in the moment that it starts early on. And I wrote an article about five ways that women show interest in sex that have nothing to do with sex and that men absolutely miss. Like, for example, she invites him to dance with her and that's her way of like, hey, come and give me attention. Come and touch my body. I want to start relaxing. And the guy is like, uh, I don't feel like dancing and dancing is not my thing. And then like at the end of the night, he's like, why don't you want to have sex with me? Well, because the seeds never got planted for the plant or the fruit that you want to collect now. So so I talk about these these different ways and how men really misinterpret women and think that they're not really sexually interested when they are. And I have uh, another article about understanding sex and men and how men relate to sex and what it means for them. And that also women completely misunderstand. So I love really understanding and, and navigating men, women dynamics in the very kind of heterosexual normative way because so much, so much gridlock happens because they're not understanding each other. They're really missing and misunderstanding the cues. And um, there's something else I wanted to mention. Uh, oh, and I also mentioned the different types of sex that happen in a long-term relationship. And I have a video on that too that I'd love to share. So I'll provide links that you can share with your audience on that. Perfect. Yeah. I'll put those in the show notes and in the description. And I'm sure that's all also linked on your website, Irene Fair. Yep. Everything, everything is up there. Perfect. Hey, I mentioned my sex research and my course in this episode and just wanted to remind you that if you're interested in my course on sex called Please Her in Bed, a course for men designed by women, you can find that at pleaseherinbed.com or on my website. And if you use the code Dear Men, all one word, Dear Men, it will drop from $97 to $69.